Please turn again to Luke chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through to 14 this morning in Luke chapter 2, a saviour is born, that's where we are in our studies of Luke's gospel, it just goes to show we don't have to wait until December do we? In our studies so far, we've seen that the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias the priest with news that his wife Elizabeth would bear him a son. Sure enough, in accordance with the word of God that was spoken by the angel, Elizabeth brought forth a son and his name was called John, as in John the Baptist. With regards to the conception and birth of John the Baptist, Elizabeth was barren and both she and her husband, Zacharias, were old. Consequently, when Zacharias received the news from the angel that his wife would conceive and bring forth a child, he didn't believe the angel and consequently he was struck dumb because of his unbelief until such time His son was born and he named him John in accordance with chapter 1 and verse 13 where the angel said to Zacharias, thou shalt call his name John. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 in the Old Testament, the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet, behold I form thee in the belly Sorry, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I think of that verse when I think of the circumstances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. Although his father, um, Zacharias the priest, didn't believe the angel of the Lord, you can be sure that the Lord God knew John the Baptist even before he was conceived in his mother's womb, before he came forth out of Elizabeth's womb, before he was sanctified and ordained a prophet. John the Baptist was a relation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was about six months older than the Lord Jesus and that can be deduced from the fact that when Mary received news that she would miraculously conceive and bring forth a son, the angel said to her in Luke chapter 1 and verse 36, And behold, thy cousin or thy relation Elizabeth, she have also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That was the sixth month, and if we assumed that it was pretty much at the same time or soon after Mary received news that she would conceive a child, um, that she became pregnant, then it's, it's reasonable to say that John the Baptist was six months or about six months older than the Lord Jesus Christ as far as the humanity of Jesus is concerned. We'll be returning to John the Baptist in due course and we will consider his ministry. However, this morning we shall look 
at some of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Look again at verses 1 through to 5 in chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. As has already been mentioned, Mary lived in Nazareth, in Galilee. However, anyone who knows anything about the Bible or has sung some of those carols that everyone seems to sing every December those people would know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem I think that's something that we all know and Bethlehem from Bethlehem um, sorry that would have been a journey of 70 miles or more for her and Joseph from their home in Nazareth in Galilee 70 miles, that, that's not much these days, is it, 70 miles? I was in England just the other week. I don't know how many miles I drove along the motorways and various roads. It was a lot more than 70 miles, that's for sure. Nevertheless, that journey from Nazareth to, Gal- uh, to Bethlehem would have been a journey of epic proportions, when you consider that heavily pregnant Mary would have been bounced up and down on the back of a donkey or a camel or some other creature with its four legs plodding along on a dusty and pothole dirt track instead of her being transported on a smooth tarmacked motorway in a nice comfortable car with four wheels, suspension and with air conditioning. The reason given for Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem is that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered for tax. In response to that imperial decree, they travelled to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, to register for tax because they were both descendants of David. Let's have a look at verses 6 and 7. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but um, perhaps you've always imagined that by the time Joseph and Mary finally arrived in Bethlehem after that journey of about 70 miles, Mary was just about ready to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment. Consequently, they hastened to an inn, which you might imagine to have been a tavern of some sort. 
a place that provided lodging and perhaps food, beverages and maybe even entertainment for the wayfaring man and woman. Maybe that is the picture that you conjure up in your mind, maybe largely due to pictures that you've seen on Christmas cards or in various books. Furthermore, you might imagine that there was a notice on the window of the inn saying, no vacancies. Or perhaps the innkeeper met them at the front door and he said, sorry, but we're full up. Even so, all was not lost because there was a stable nearby. Maybe it belonged to the inn and it was there that Jesus was born and placed in a manger with Joseph acting as midwife. And all in the nick of time. And, uh, any longer, and who knows what might have happened. The thing is that these verses would seem to tell us something rather different. For one thing, it was while Joseph and Mary were there in Bethlehem that she gave birth. That's in verse 6. It was, so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished. Well, how long was that? We're not told while they were there. That could have been several days, for all we know. We're not told, are we? While, we they, while they were there, she gave birth. As for the inn, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that is recorded in chapter 10. Jesus says in verse 33 and 34, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he, that is the man left for dead by robbers, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast. Listen to this bit now. And brought him to an inn and took care of him. The inn that is in the parable of the Good Samaritan really was a public place that received strangers. However, the inn that is spoken of in chapter 2 and verse 7 comes from a different Greek word and it means guest room. That means that the likelihood is that Mary and Joseph were staying with relatives but the inn or the guest room in the house was taken and consequently they were accommodated in some other room or even an annex to the house that provided shelter for the household's animals. Whilst Mary and Joseph were staying in that room Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ and quite possibly female relations were on hand to deliver baby Jesus and to wrap him in swaddling clothes and to lay him in a manger. I'm not saying that is the case but we really don't know and it seems highly feasible when you start looking into the passage and looking at various other passages. Luke tells us in verse 7 that she brought forth her firstborn son. What does that immediately tell you? 
she brought forth her firstborn son. It tells me that Jesus was the first of many others. Yet, Roman Catholicism teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she only ever gave birth to one child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely the implication is that if Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, then she went on to have more children who were born having been naturally conceived, of course. Also, when you look elsewhere, when you look at Matthew chapter 13, for example, verse 55 and verse 56, it can be seen that Mary did indeed go on to have at least another six children. In those verses, you don't have to turn to it, but if you want the reference, Matthew 13, verse 55 and verse 56. In those verses, it is written that there were people who said the following about Jesus. Is is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James, Joseph and Simon, and Judas, that's four brothers, and his sisters, not sister, but sisters, so at least two sisters there, are they not all with us? So you've got at least six siblings there. In those verses, so, work that one out for yourself. We need to be very careful. There are various traditions of men that are taken for truth. But what we need to do is see what saith the scripture. And you'll find that quite often it says something very different indeed. And that Jesus being a perpetual virgin, that's not just a minor doctrine, is it, of the Roman Catholic Church. It is a big one. It's massive. And yet I think I've proved to you, just from, from, the, from the scriptures, that it is flawed. Let's have a look at verses 8 through to 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When a new king is born... How do you imagine that the news of the royal birth is disseminated? How is it spread? Perhaps, first of all, the news reaches other members of the royal family. 
and close acquaintances of the royal family. Then maybe there's a phone call to number 10 and various heads of state. I don't know, I'm guessing, but it's probably something along those lines. Then maybe there's a, the news is then spread by the, uh, the royal press office to the media, obviously, first of all, to the BBC, and from there, the news reaches us, the common folk. Last of all, how different it all was when the Lord Jesus Christ was born in the lowliest and humblest of circumstances. Let's remember that the one whose birth was heralded by an angel is not just a king, he is the king of kings. I like this, I, I hadn't seen it before, but looking at verse 11 there, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour which is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day a saviour which is Christ the Lord. That reminds me of Isaiah chapter 5. For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. Isaiah goes on to say, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's next? Everlasting Father, Mighty God, God, Prince of Peace. The prophet goes on to speak about uh, the throne of his kingdom being an everlasting throne and he shall rule on the throne of David forever. The zeal of the Lord shall accomplish it and this we see here, these verses in Luke chapter 2, it's a fulfilment of all of that. The angel saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour which is Christ the Lord. The fulfilment of prophecy there. The first people to receive the good tidings of great joy were not the rich, not the powerful of this world, rather they were just lowly shepherds in a field watching their sheep. Verse 11, the angel described the baby who was lying in a manger as a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. Remember, the baby was just born and yet he's being heralded as a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. That baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, it lying in a manger, What could we possibly need to be saved from? Because he's a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. We need to be saved, but what from? Sin. More than anything, we need to be saved from sin. So important to realise that. There's nothing more urgent, nothing more important to realise that you need to be saved from your sin if you haven't already been saved from your sin. Highlighting the hideousness of sin and how great an enemy sin is. I've read this before, but it is so, so well put together. I'll read it again for you. Bishop J.C. Ryle, this is what he said. But is there nothing like leprosy among ourselves? 
Yes, indeed there is. There is a foul soul disease which is ingrained into our very nature and cleaves to our bones and marrow with deadly force. That disease is the plague of sin. Like leprosy, it is a deep-seated disease infecting every part of our nature, heart, will, conscience, understanding, memory and affections. Like leprosy, it makes us loathsome and abominable, unfit for the company of God and unfit for the glory of heaven. Like leprosy, it is incurable by any earthly physician and is slowly but surely dragging us down to the second death. And worst of all, far worse than leprosy, it is a disease from which no mortal man is exempt. We are all in God's sight as an unclean thing. Powerful words from Bishop Ryle there. But gives you some, hopefully, that gives you some idea of just how terrible sin is. I've said this before as well. Perhaps it's because I've been here 12 years now. You know, I'm saying the same things over and over. But I'm sure even in the church, there are Christians who don't really understand the sinfulness of sin. They really haven't got it. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying that they are truly born-again Christians. But the way they talk, it makes me wonder, have they really grasped what they've been saved from? But that should become clear if we meditate upon what happened at the cross. We have to keep going back to the cross. Jesus wasn't having a party on that cross. He drunk the the cup of sin at that cross. We have redemption in his blood if we are Christians. That blood that flowed from the veins of Emmanuel at Calvary's cross. When God laid upon his son your iniquity, dear Christian. When Jesus was wounded for your transgressions. Sin is a terrible thing. That is what we all need to be saved from. Never mind anything else that's going on in this world or in your life. You could be dead tomorrow. You could be dead before the day is finished. And you need to be saved from your sin. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the very best news that you could ever hear. As for Jesus being called Christ, because he's called the Christ here, even as a tiny baby wrapped up in a manger, he's Christ. The word Christ means anointed. It's interesting to note that even at his birth, He is called Christ. As the saviour from sin, Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. 
chosen and anointed by his father when? When he was born in Bethlehem? Not at all. He was anointed before the foundation of the world. In eternity. He is a lamb without blemish, without spot, foreordained before the foundation of the world to lay down his life as the sacrifice for sin. It's not something that God had dreamed up six months, sorry, nine months earlier and now we have the result of that um, amazing plan of God with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Not at all. I've already pointed out to you that it was the fulfilment of prophecy such as Isaiah chapter 5, sorry chapter 9 I think, yeah chapter 9 verse 5. But beyond that, God's eternal decree. God anointed his son, made him the Christ in eternity. And he came into this world as the Christ, the anointed one, and as the saviour Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. In chapter 4 and verse 18 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus was in a synagogue and he read a seven-year-old Old Testament prophecy. It's easy enough to turn to that one, isn't it? If you keep your finger in chapter 2, you might like to read along with me. I'm going to read chapter eight. Sorry, chapter four, verse eighteen. See where many times you can find the word forgiveness as I'm reading along and as you're following there. Okay, so Jesus was in the synagogue reading the prophecy of Isaiah, and he said in verse eighteen, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He have anointed me." There you go. He's anointed. That, that's Jesus the Christ. He have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He have sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus then declared himself to be the fulfilment of that prophecy to the amazement of all the people in the synagogue who were listening at the time. So Jesus, he declared himself to be the fulfilment of those words and he said, the Lord has anointed me, hence him being the Christ. But where does Jesus talk about forgiveness in those words? Well, for one thing, Jesus spoke about himself preaching deliverance to the captives. If you've got the King James Bible, you'll see that there. To preach deliverance to the captives. The Greek word that is translated deliverance means forgiveness. Jesus was anointed as the Christ to preach forgiveness to those who are captive to sin. Likewise, where Jesus spoke about himself setting at liberty, you can see that also in chapter 4, verse 18, setting at liberty them that are bruised. Liberty, surprise, surprise, it also means forgiveness. 
all who have shown repentance towards God and are trusting in Jesus, they have redemption in his blood, even the forgiveness of their sins. They are truly free, having been set at liberty by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have redemption in his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. All our sins, past, present and future. As well as calling Jesus a saviour and Christ, the angel of the Lord called him Lord. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. That word Lord can simply mean master or sir, can't it? We all know that coming from this part of the world. For example, in the UK, there are quite a few people who have been given the title Lord. Although I must admit that more and more I I, I cannot bring myself to address any of them as Lord. I have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to Jesus, the title Lord is nothing less than the declaration that he is the Lord of Lords, that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, that in Jesus, who as a little baby was wrapped in swaddling clothes, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Last but not least, what we have considered today started off with the Roman Emperor issuing a decree that all the world should be taxed. He was a powerful man, he could do such things. Issue a decree, everyone go to your, 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 where you come from, your home city, and, and register for taxing. And times haven't changed. There's a lot of people that have got a lot of power, far too much power, actually, way too much power, and they can make us do all sorts of things. But anyway, back to this decree from the emperor. What happened next after that decree was issued? Mary and Joseph, who were of the house and lineage of King David, travelled from their home in Nazareth, Galilee, to the city of David, Bethlehem, to be taxed. I don't know. Obviously, you didn't mess around with imperial decrees because Mary was pregnant. You, You would have thought she would have stayed behind. Maybe someone can explain that one to me. While they were there in Bethlehem, Mary gave birth to a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And the news of his birth was given by the angel of the Lord to shepherds who kept watch of their flock by night. But more importantly, you need to understand that everything that happened was in accordance not so much with the emperor's decree, but with God's decree. As can be seen in Old Testament prophecy. For example, in Micah chapter 2, Uh, Sorry, chapter 5 and verse 2. It is written, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's in Old Testament prophecy. 
That prophetic verse shows that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom, were appointed by God from eternity. Can you see how the great events of this world and the big decisions that are made by important people, even kings and emperors, are all under God's control and ultimately they will be most they will most certainly be carried out in accordance with God's great plans. Everything that happens in this world, God is in control. As it is written in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Do you know, as a Christian, I, I, I observe things that go on in this world probably more than I should do. And I do delve into things. And I look, I see things, I find out about things that are happening. I don't just listen to the BBC. I go, I, I, I look at various media, um, the various media outlets and, and so on. And there are things that are happening in this world, even in this land here, that would make me despair and quite honestly not want to be alive if I didn't have Jesus. Terrible things that are happening in this world. But I don't despair, not at all, because I know that my God is in control. And it makes all the difference to me. So much difference to know that the God who loved me and who gave himself for me is in control of everything. And that one day he is coming again in judgment. And for the time being, people do their worst. But God is in control. An example of God's eternal decree being fulfilled in accordance with God's um, uh, God's eternal decree being fulfilled is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem about 33 years after his birth, his virgin birth in Bethlehem. We've seen that the virgin birth, where it was, when it happened, was all in accordance with God's decree and enshrined in prophecy. It was precisely the same 33 years later with his crucifixion. The Apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost after the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended to heavenly glory. And concerning the sacrificial death of Jesus, Peter said to the Jews, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He didn't let them off the hook. They were guilty. And by the end of that sermon, about 3,000 of them had uh, repented of their terrible sin, putting to death the anointed one the Christ. 
But can you see there, he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was done in accordance with God's foreknowledge, in accordance with God's predetermined counsel. Do you know, it's been said, now this is something to take away with you, this is what's been said to me and it's it's really food for thought this. What do you think this world is all about? Why did God create this world? Why did God create things and everything else? For the cross. Because at the cross we see all the glorious attributes of God. And God is glorified. It was all done in accordance with God's predetermined counsel, the cross, the crucifixion of the Holy One. And the world, everything that we see, was all put into place so that in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world, born of a virgin, and about 33 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate God, would be nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. And what do we see at that cross? Certainly the wrath of God. We see his mercy. We see his grace. We see his love in a way that we would never see these things. And God is glorified. We've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, not so much because of a decree from Rome, but because of God's eternal decree. And then at the cross, those year, 33 years later, in the fullness of time, Jesus redeemed people like you, like me, helpless, hopeless sinners with his own precious blood in accordance with God's perfect will. You think of God being angry with his son at the cross. But Jesus, there were times we, where we see that God was well pleased with his son. When Jesus was baptised by John the Baptist, the, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, pretty much the same words, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Jesus was obedient to his Father, even unto the death of the cross. When he laid down his life at the cross, he did so in obedience to his Father, who you can be sure was well pleased with his Son. And the wrath that we see there is a wrath for, on account of sin, the sin of you and me. A world of sin. 
Jesus, he drank the cup of sin, the cup of God's wrath, but it wasn't because God was angry with his son. God is angry with sinners. And the wrath of God abides on anyone in here who has not, having heard the gospel, I don't know how many times, still sits there and rejects Jesus as their saviour, rejects the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus will also give you the right and the great privilege of knowing and addressing God as your father. And that is a wonderful thing. Believe me, believe anyone in here who knows God as their heavenly father. Nothing more wonderful than having that kind of relationship with your maker. Amen.